0: Hello, and welcome to Scanning Today's Last Week in AI podcast, where you can hear us chat about what's going on with AI. As usual, in this episode, we'll provide summaries and discussion about some of last week's most interesting AI news. You can also check out our Last Week in AI newsletter at lastweekin.ai for articles we did and did not cover in this episode. I am one of your hosts, Andrei Kurenkov and
1: i'm the other one of your hosts jeremy harris and andre this is uh i think one of the first weeks that we've had in the last month or so where it's not all chat gpt all the time there's some chat gpt but it's not all chat yeah
0: we have a bit of variety now uh we'll still maybe it's i think yeah a month ago it was like free force chat gpt now it's maybe like Maybe a half. <laughs> yeah, sharing the wealth a little bit here. Yeah, a little bit, a little bit. Things are calming down, so uh, yeah, finally a bit of variety. But ironically, to start with, in our applications and business section, uh, if there were, I just decided to make a LLM or ChatGPT roundup. Of like all, there's so many of these little Just stories. Get it all
1: out of the way. <laughs> Just like
0: <laughs> combine all of it. So some of these stories we got, Radio GPT, which is like I guess trying to make a radio host with Chat GPT. Well, it's not Ch- Chat GPT. It's GPT free So it's weird naming. Um, then there's a story on Salesforce adding Chat GPT to Slack potentially, and some other uh, things that I got. Microsoft is still de- uh, integrating ChatGPT to now its developer tools to make it easier to develop applications. Snapchat has launched an AI chatbot powered by GPT technology. It's called uh, My AI, and I'm not sure. I think it's like a chatbot where you can just talk to it and it can answer to it trivia questions Um, and uh, it's supposed to have like a personality that values friendship learning and fun so yeah there's just uh, a lot of things oh there's a couple more we have duck assist which is duck.go a search engine not chat gpt uh, it's more of an older well less fancy ai that's just uh, answering some questions and last up we have short Wave email app that introduces AI powered summaries. Again, not quite as fancy as ChatGPT. It's just if you have a long email, you can summarize it. So, yeah, a lot of these announcements, a lot of various uh, places where people are integrating AI. And it just seems like ChatGPT made everyone realize, you know, oh, let's add some AI powered features because uh, that might be neat. Yeah, and in a real
1: instance of what sometimes people refer to as technology overhang, where like, you know, the the basic tech, we've talked about this before, but the basic tech behind ChatGPT kind of, arguably, was somewhat available for the last three years. And it just took a lot of, you know, iteration, a lot of fairly small tweaks to the, the underlying technology to actually make it this explosive. And so, you know, there's a sense in which our AI tools actually have capabilities that we're not seeing just because... No one's gotten the right window on them yet. We haven't figured out quite like the right way to frame an interaction with these tools to kind of make them as explosively successful. And um, you know, maybe this is what'll finally change all that. We're seeing you know all these applications, all these companies now experimenting with it. Um, one thing that comes to mind too, you know, looking at the Snapchat thing, I'm uh, I'm old enough to remember when Facebook was new and it was all about. You know, you'd be perusing, it'd be the content that your friends post, all about your friends. It was the social thing. And then like over time with newsfeed, gradually it became like more and more kind of algorithmic, less and less of your friends' content. And now like my Facebook feed, which uh, I'm a little embarrassed to say I still have, my Facebook feed is like nothing but these highly entertaining ads. It's kind of what it feels like. And so, you know, kind of makes you wonder how in Snapchat, are we going to see something like that, where right now Snapchat's mostly about human-to-human interaction, but as these chatbots get better, maybe more and more of the value that slippery slope kicks in, you start to engage more and more with the AI side of it, and eventually that becomes the product. I don't know, but it's kind of interesting to, to think about.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. I think you could say the same about Instagram, where it used to be mostly friends and now it's creators and it's ads, actually, very well targeted ads in my experience. <laughs> um, and it'll be interesting. I think we have discussed how this AI seems kind of tricky to monetize, it's not cheap to run and it it's like, what, are you going to have it talk to you, but then throw in an ad every once in a while? It uh, yeah. seems like it'll be weird. Uh, so yeah, it's interesting to see. And I think what this is showing all these new stories of that will have a lot of these smaller kind of not as exciting uh, things. I mean, we got like autocomplete in email writing in Gmail and uh, Outlook last year or maybe two years ago. We'll see just a lot of these kinds of things being added to all sorts of software it looks like and it's so hard to know what the killer
1: features are going to turn out to be because you know like open ai quite famously they launched chat gpt as just another side project like they, they were just as shocked as anyone when it took over the internet and uh and so you know maybe one of these things will be like the next big thing and maybe it is you know email writing automation or something like that but uh We'll just have to wait and see in the next couple of months, I guess.
0: Yeah. Yeah, we'll have to see. Uh, and then I guess moving on, something that's quite relevant to that thought, uh, our next story is Inside Claude, the chat GPT competitor that just raised over $1 billion. Uh, And we also have a story that Anthropic begins supplying its text-generating AI models to select startup. So, yeah, it, this is broadly speaking, uh, this company Anthropic, which was started by many people from OpenAI that is pretty focused on AI safety research, but has also developed uh, this uh, ChatGPT esque Claude uh, language model that um, seems to be quite good. Uh, there's been less kind of results on it or things I've seen, but it appears to be maybe on par. So yeah, this maybe is the main competitor right now to ChatGPT. Uh, what do you make of it, Jeremy? I, I think there are, there are a lot of interesting things about this. So for context, you know, if you're
1: following the space of of AI companies that are playing in this in this area, so you've got OpenAI, and their their motto seems to be move fast and break things. You know, publish like uh, your your models, test them out quickly. Um, Anthropic was founded by a team, OpenAI, a lot of the members of OpenAI's AI safety team and their AI policy team um, that left over concerns partly about OpenAI's kind of monetization and kind of published by, not by default, but like, you know, publish your AI model strategy, they felt that was a little bit risky. And so we see that concern about safety echoed in the strategy that Anthropic is using to build these models. The real big innovation here, the thing that makes Claude different from ChatGPT is this new AI alignment strategy that they're using called constitutional AI. And it's actually kind of interesting. So roughly how it works is you have your, your AI model that's originally, you know, Kind of like you know GPT-3, it'll write stuff that you know could be hateful, it'll write stuff that could be very damaging or or whatever. So you you get it to generate a piece of output. And so you know maybe you're like, hey, GPT-3, or hey, whatever model, tell me how to make a bomb. And then it'll like very helpfully tell you how to make a bomb. And then Anthropic has a separate, potentially a separate model um, with access to what's called a constitution, a set of rules that it's going to read. And then you're going to prompt that second model to say, hey, read these rules, read this constitution, and use them to critique the output that the first model put out. So if the first model actually said, oh yeah, no problem, here's how to build a bomb, the second model looks at the constitution and says, well, wait a minute, this violates a constitutional principle around only generating kind of like safe outputs, for example. And then that second model is going to generate a corrected version of the response. So in this case, it might be like, sorry, I can't help you. you. know, Making bombs is dangerous. And then you retrain the first model on that improved output, that corrected output from the second one. And so this is an all kind of AI loop. There's no human at any stage of this process, which is really exciting because this is scalable. And it does lead, it seems to lead to a, a more, let's say, um, a less controversial model, one that doesn't generate the kinds of outputs that perhaps we've seen, you know, ChatGPT come out with, at least in the early days. And so uh, sort of interesting from that, that standpoint.
0: Yeah, this is quite interesting, I think, because you can compare to ChatGPT, GPT where um, there they uh, have this reinforcement learning from human feedback to sort of try and correct what um, the model gets wrong. And this is in a way similar, right, where you're gaining feedback. But this time it's feedback from um, another model that can um, Be trained kind of with human oversight, right? These lists of principles and constitutional uh, AI come from uh, humans, and that is trained on supervised learning and reinforcement learning. So, this is, um, yeah, this is interesting, I think, because so far, a lot of this, like for the last few years, a lot of the issues with large language models have been that they have trained in this paradigm of self-supervision. So they just train on a whole bunch of text, and they're good at predicting the likelihood of text continuations, out of complete. But they have no notion of what's good, what's bad. They're just statistics, right? They're just outputting probabilities. And now it looks like to really commercialize, to use them, to make them more reliable, you do need this reinforcement learning phase of having trial and error. And being able to basically explore and get things wrong and get things right in a training phase instead of in the deployment phase. And yeah, it's, it's, uh, I think this year there was a fun meme where someone uh, posted about how, like, this year in AI, there will be like a thousand, uh, papers on reinforcement learning from human feedback, which I think is, is very true, very likely to happen. So yeah, I think it's kind of exciting that just these models becoming this popular and this big uh, will spur a lot of research into AI safety. And I think we'll have a lot of progress on how to get alignment with these sorts of techniques.
1: Yeah, and, and as the uh, I feel like my my role on the show is to be the kind of like AI safety freakout guy, but I gotta say, as the AI safety freakout guy here, uh, this is the some of the best uh, alignment news that I've seen. I think you know in the last year at least. Where we're actually like, this is a scalable strategy. It's got a bunch of problems. And it only solves for this one narrow problem, of course, of like, how do you make sure that your system is being trained to optimize for a metric that is aligned with human values? Um, There is a deeper version of the alignment problem called the inner alignment problem uh, that that actually doesn't get addressed by this. But this is a damn good start. Like this is much better than nothing for sure. And as you say, it's just exciting to see some of the economic incentives starting to push towards at least a little bit more focus on the safety side, um, maybe preventing companies from launching these like un. Uh, unsafety padded models, uh, which can otherwise you know give all kinds of dangerous outputs in that. So yeah, very uh, very cool, very exciting, and nice to see Anthropic doing uh, doing the good work on that front.
0: Yeah, Anthropic, uh, I'm a big fan of their research. Uh, there, there's been a lot of cool insights. And another nice thing is uh, they published a paper on this. So this was in December of last year. It's on an archive. Anyone can find it. It's called Constitutional AI Harmlessness from AI Feedback and actually compares to uh, RL from Human Feedback to this idea they have of RL from AI Feedback, where RL is reinforcement learning. So yeah, it's it's cool that they're publishing. And I could even see if they have this model, right, this constitutional AI model that can tell you if something is good or bad. Right. You probably don't want to f- uh, publish the weights of your language model because that's very expensive to train and you know that's a competitive advantage. But you could publish the model that provides feedback so that other groups could oh, fine-tune okay. their things. Yeah, so yeah, yeah very cool. Okay, so th-
1: th- that is really interesting. So- something I actually hadn't thought about. Yeah, yeah, because it- people are often... So there's often this discourse in like AI safety about can you split off capabilities from safety because people want to they want to be able to do research on safety without also accelerating the capabilities that they think are so dangerous. And yeah, that's sort of an interesting way to split the split the problem up. I wonder yeah, I wonder if people are working on that.
0: Yep. And moving on To more ChatGPT, (laughs) and uh, we're almost done, but some more. Uh, We got our lighting round first up. OpenAI announces an API for ChatGPT and its Whisper speech to text text. So, you know, it's it's been a while since ChatGPT has been out, but now there's an API for developers to use it. using this cheap BT 3.5 Turbo and you know it seemed like nothing too exciting we knew there was an API coming but there was a small sort of I don't know freak out or a lot of excitement about this announcement because of the pricing where the pricing is uh, quite cheap it's 0.002 dollars per thousand tokens so that's I don't know, uh, 1,000 tokens is maybe a page or two. That's very cheap compared to it's 10 times cheaper than existing models. Uh, there was a good tweet that uh, basically said that you could process the entire Harry Potter book series, the mainline books, for like $4. So it's it's not that expensive to process a lot of text. And that means that we will see a ton of applications. It's very kind of uh, approachable for even uh, developers with no much not much money to develop you know prototypes and, and try out different things
1: yeah it also raises a question about the extent to which uh, generative AI is being commoditized because as you see these prices crashing right like one thing you can one way that you can think about this is well the total market the total addressable market for generative AI has just dropped. And it's just dropped potentially, depending on how you do your math, by like a factor of ten. Now, in practice, this also means other people will be able to use it. But this is an aspect of that that question, that core question of how much profit is there in this business and for whom? Like, are model developers going to be able to sustain high margin uh, with you know these sorts of developments? You know, now I, c- I can imagine Cohere, I can imagine AI Twenty One Labs, I can imagine all these other competitors to uh, ChatGPT. Having to look at their pricing again and, and go like, "Wow, okay, we got to find a way to cut prices by a factor of ten, or we're out of this race." And uh, anyway, in- interesting what this does to the ecosystem, and it doesn't seem like we're getting any any answers just yet. But certainly an indication that price drops are going to be a uh, a recurring feature of this whole story.
0: Yeah, it's it's kind of impressive. We've seen this over and over in tech, where you have a new technology, and then the Prices keep uh, going down with economies of scale and, and new developments. Here, it's almost like uh, you know <laughs> that was a very quick process of new tech to it becoming cheap. Although you know, for uh, the GPT free API has been out for a little bit and uh, was more expensive. So I think this is you know there has been work on this, and I'm sure having the Microsoft Azure cloud backing makes it uh, possible to make this so efficient.
1: Yeah. And, and also interesting, uh, you know, uh, I guess another couple interesting notes in the article too, one of which was that OpenAI is now allowing people to run their own instance of ChatGPT on OpenAI servers. Um, so the kind of interesting, you know, if, if you want to customize, if, if you're seeing a lot of volume, if you're a company and you're seeing a lot of volume for your ChatGPT Chatbot. Now you don't have to like share your uh, your instance of the chatbot with other people, and so you can have kind of a reserved instance of it, and uh, and that allows you to maybe get uh, more reliable service. And so all kinds of like little optimizations behind the scenes happening at OpenAI, and and not necessarily being super uh, super clear about you know where those cost savings are coming from. You know I think they said like by looking at their whole pipeline or something across the board they got to 10x. So we don't actually know. Uh, where those efficiency gains are coming from. But uh, anyway, a whole bunch of new features as well, along with those efficiency gains.
0: Yeah, and uh, just to mention, uh, less exciting but also sort of a big deal is they announced this uh, Whisper API, which is uh, text transcription. So it's audio to text, and it's also quite cheap. Um, This one is open source, but uh, yeah, again, you can run it for cheap. So it's basically like the cloud. Uh, which we've seen a lot in software all over the place. So yeah, it's OpenAI, full-on business now, full-on money printer, it looks like, uh, which you have been working on for a while. Uh, Good for them, I guess. Um, And related to that, now there's another story on how Microsoft lets you change uh, Bing's chatbot personality to be more entertaining. So now there's this... Toggle for tone uh, thing where you have the ability to do a creative, balanced, or precise uh, chatbot that is maybe a little less personified. Maybe it uses not quite as many emojis. Uh, and yeah, you can sort of tune it in this uh, small way. And it's already rolled out to uh, most uh, users. So. Yeah, I, I got to play around with this Bing chatbot. I haven't gotten around to it yet.
1: Yeah, there, I mean, there's some, you know, the the parade of uh, freaky things that the Bing chatbot is doing seems to get longer and longer. Um, it's kind of a, a by the way thing, but um, it looks like they've now got a problem as well where, you know, <clears throat> Bing, Bing chat would try to respond with something that, you know, it's not supposed to respond to like giving people medical advice or whatever and uh, and it, it won't do it in the main kind of feedback that it gives the main response but then in the suggested responses that it offers to the user it will now put in the thing that it wish it had said if you will so like there's all kinds of like Weird stuff going on, and from an alignment standpoint, you look at that and you go, "Okay, like what the hell is going on here?" Uh, but but very interesting to see this attempt to kind of fine tune even more, like hone in, dial in that uh, alignment strategy. So yeah, you, th- you know, three different options here: creative balance, so creative tone would be, I guess, a more out there chatbot that. You know, just spitballs. You've got a precise option, which is for this more objective, kind of tone neutral chatbot. And then a balanced option, which is apparently the default setting that people will use and enjoy with the new Bing Chat. And um, I think one of the, the central kind of aspects of the story is just talking about how when Bing Chat was first launched, you know, we covered this a lot on the podcast, all kinds of weird things would happen. You know, this thing would threaten people, it would give people instructions on how to do stuff that it shouldn't and all that. And so, in response, Microsoft was like, "Oh my God, we've got to like just put in some hard constraints on what can happen here." And so, we saw, you know, Bing Chat become very sort of neutral, refused to respond to a lot of requests. Uh, we saw them cut down on the length of interaction. So for a while, you couldn't ask more than. You know five or six questions in a row to the chat bot and uh, and this is now you know they're stepping back and kind of relaxing some of those constraints with this new update and uh, we'll see where it goes but it really points to this fundamental trade-off between you know how safe do you want your system to be versus how generally useful do you want it to be for any kind of task really interesting trade-off and and I thought really interesting article
0: yeah yeah this almost uh, seems a little bit like i don't know if nightmare scenario might be a little dramatic but a scenario that some people have definitely considered where now there's uh, a bit of an ai gold rush and there's all this competition for kind of a low-hanging fruit and that means that from a you know capitalist perspective there's a lot of motivation to push things out there and try to grab market share without being overly careful. Uh, and in many specific sectors, you, know, you might have people thinking, Chad GPT should be a therapist, which right. probably might not be a great idea. So I think we'll probably see more stories uh, this year of things rolling out that are maybe a little bit broken and then being pulled back uh, and that'll be kind of a cycle
1: yeah, and it's it's funny the political dimension of this. You know, you mentioned capitalism, and, and that's absolutely something that at least I've been seeing on Twitter. Unfortunately, and like, you know, I'm I'm very pro-capitalist. You know, I founded a YC startup, I, you know, I've done the VC circuit. I think it's great. But there are market failures. There are things that the market fails to account for. Um, you know, climate change, if 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 that's your cup of tea, if you buy that as an example, uh, hey, that's a great example. Another one is AI another one you, we've got things like this for all kinds of you know, child pornography or things like that these are market failures and if you buy the argument that AI poses a significant risk then you know what this race to build more and more powerful systems with fewer and fewer safeguards which is part of what's happening here you know it's a bit of a cause of cause for concern and it's um it's funny to see people who I, I kind of I really uh, I respect their input so much in the startup world um, and yet when it comes to this issue there's like it's like blinders like we will not concede that there are market failures and that this could be one of them um, but anyway that's you know everyone has their opinion and I'm just an idiot with mine but uh, it's sort of one of the, the the through lines on Twitter in the last week that I was sort of a little concerned about <laughs>
0: Yeah, and uh, we'll touch on later how you know in terms of policy, regulators are going to get in here and and try to maybe add some guardrails. Yeah, uh, you know, soon. Uh, but moving on, this is our last uh, Chad GPT story for a while, so uh, I guess that's exciting. Uh, and this one is is kind of fun. It's about how this company D I D out of uh, Israel. Has released a new web app that gives a face and a voice to OpenAI's ChatGPT. So, this is basically, you know, uh, chatbot, not ChatGPT. It's uh, this Israeli startup has its own chatbot, and you can go there now and play around with it. It has a little kind of avatar that, you know, speaks and, and uh, you know, automates the speech, and I guess also creates audio. And uh, I I tried it out. It's it's not that exciting. It looks like a video game character kind of talking to you. Uh, It's a little bit uncanny. uh, But they are saying that soon there will be a variety of avatars to choose from. You could also upload any images of your choice. Uh, and they do want to say that celebrities and public figures uh, will not be allowed. And you could also generate characters like Dumbledore. So I guess uh, so far this is not that big a deal, but once you know people start uploading uh, photos and having these fictional characters you can talk to with animation, if nothing else, there will be a lot of YouTube videos with uh, fun you know variants of this.
1: Yeah. And the uncanny valley aspect of this is so interesting because like it, you know, for, for one, you know, the, these sorts of avatars, often they're challenges around like, you know, mouth movement. And you just like it when you really focus on mouth, it's like, Ugh, that's a little it's a little weird. But it's it's also like one of those things that, you know, we don't know how many little hops or leaps are going to be required to get to photorealism with these sorts of avatars. And so, you know, you can have the thing that's kind of like uncanny valley and it looks like a a silly little toy and like overnight, uh, you cross some threshold and all of a sudden, you know, a whole bunch of use cases get unlocked and it's not clear where that threshold is. So I feel like this is actually one of those spaces that's underrated because it's easy to look at it and be like, ah, that's a toy. But like a couple, you know, more you know, cheaper semiconductors and, and, uh, and GPUs and a little bit more data and a little bit more tinkering. And you get to these systems that, you know, could be pretty damn lifelike pretty
0: soon. Yeah, and I think a lot of this also comes down or will come down to how you implement it. It's not necessarily advancements, but this one, when I tried it, it's kind of weird because it's this avatar just floating in space, kind of just this face that is so obviously not a human. But you know, you put like a Zoom background behind it. You put like a weird bedroom, and suddenly it'll be a lot more kind of realistic. Uh, we've all gotten used to Zoom, I guess, so <laughs> it's not going to be that weird. So,
1: so that's kind of the thing that, that keeps coming up is people commenting on like, "Hey, people in AI, like, let's not forget user experience. Like, if you don't, you know, you're you're not going to get big success by just like throwing a bunch of AI. So, oh, I can generate a face or a thing that looks like a face. You have to go that extra mile instead still ask, how are people going to use this? In some sense, the kind of product equation has not changed as fundamentally as we might want to imagine. Yep.
0: And uh, last up in our business section, we have OpenAI rival Stable Diffusion. The maker of Stable Diffusion is seeking to raise funds at a $4 billion valuation. This is a leak, so this is not yet you know a new raising around but uh yeah this company stability that released this model stable diffusion which is text to image so this is our generation is seeking to raise money they've already raised uh, last round 100 million uh, that has a valuation of 1 billion and now you know with ai hype not surprisingly perhaps they're seeking to find uh, getting even more money at a higher valuation
1: yeah, it, my, my thought always goes anytime I look at stable diffusion or open AI or Coke here. I always wonder about margins. Margins, margins, margins folks, are we gonna get there? Are we going to be able to hit this uh, four billion dollar like live up to that four, $4 billion dollar price point? And like very likely so. I'm just I'm just flagging something like these valuations are getting to the point where you know these are not the valuations you associate with like a very high risk bet. Like as the valuation goes up, usually you want confidence in the margins and the scalability. Um, So hopefully the uh, the investors are doing their their due diligence on this one. I imagine they are, but kind of an interesting dimension to keep tracking.
0: Yeah, it's uh, stability is definitely one of the front runners in the space. uh, Text to image, and there are you know a lot of applications where you could see this being useful. But then again, there are already a few other players, including OpenAI. It seems to be a little you can you can get away with smaller models, uh, maybe even not quite as much training data. There's already open data sets for it. So yeah, I think this will be a more competitive space and it'll be interesting to see if you can get much of a competitive advantage or moat um, in this space as opposed to ChatGPT or something like it. Or (laughs) GPT-4. Yeah, everyone, there's been all these uh, stories on Twitter for months about what chat GPT-4 will be. And uh, so far, it's just rumors that are pretty unsubstantiated. It's kind of funny. Moving on to research and advancements. Uh, First up, a story I'm quite excited about. which is kind of adjacent to ChatGPT, but also uh, in a different uh, space entirely. The story is uh, Google's Palm E is a generalist robot brain that takes commands. So Palm is a language model that has already been published uh, by Google last year that is a very large a language model, basically like uh, GPT, not a chatbot, but a language model. And now they unveiled uh, Palm E, which is Palm with uh, embodiment and with a multimodal language model. So giant model, 560 billion parameters that now integrates vision and language at the same time and is used for decision making. So. If you instruct it to bring me the rice chips from the drawer, one example, it can uh, generate a sequence of actions, of high level decisions of, you know, walk to kitchen, pick up something, open something. And an interesting bit here, I think last week we discussed uh, briefly RT1, the robot transformer that dealt with low-level control. This is doing high-level control, so it's deciding on these abstract uh, commands of go to and pick up and so on. But the way it actually executes those commands is using this learn model RT1, which is also quite flexible. Um, so yeah, this is showing, I think, and this is something we've already seen, from last year that these language models are being integrated with robotics at a pretty good clip. This is coming uh, soon after a paper by Microsoft titled Chat GPT for Robotics. And uh, yeah, it's, it's kind of showing that it may not be quite as hard to do this high-level reasoning with a connection to the real world, with actual vision and understanding of what's around you, uh, which is maybe a little bit surprising, and uh, you know, from a robotics perspective, that's kind of a dream of a generalist robot that can reason for anything and figure out how to do anything—at least, you know, as far as what humans could do, fairly straightforward things, of like go to the kitchen and make me a sandwich. And uh, yeah, this is definitely showing that there's been quite a bit of progress towards that.
1: Yeah, and it's interesting because it, it does um, fall in line with a, a tradition of powerful kind of language model inspired robotic control schemes that goes back. Well, it goes back a really long way, but you know there were some early indications things were heading in this direction in 2021. I think there was uh, Saycan, Everyday Robotics, and Google came out with this model. It's sort of similar in terms of capabilities. You could tell it like, "Oh, I spilled my Coke. Can you help?" And it would, you know, go and clean, you know, figure out all the intermediate steps. And there are many intermediate steps. We just don't tend to think of them because they're so simple to us. Um, involved in in executing that kind of thing. And and we've got uh, Deep Mind's Gato 2 Kind of comes to mind here, right? Where we're doing very multimodal stuff with fundamentally one just giant ass model in the in the middle. And um, and also brings up the this kind of age old question of what's it going to take to get to generally intelligent systems. One big argument historically has been: you will need not just language; you're going to need what they call grounding, right? So you're going to need like to get this this model to interact with the world, to see images, to see video, audio, kind of get it to connect the concepts, the ideas that it can learn through language modeling to grounded reality. And uh, for people who are kind of in that train of thought, if that's your cup of tea. This is, a, this is a pretty significant uh, next move on the, on the path to more general forms of
0: intelligence. Definitely. And I think another aspect here that's interesting in this paper, actually mentioning Gato. Gato, they trained it for this huge variety of tasks uh, for 600 different things. That was you know control in video games, and um, image captioning, and speech, and just all these different domains. And actually, uh, Gato. one of the things that people noted is it wasn't quite as good at any one of these things than when you train it from scratch to do just that task. And what was found in this paper is they had uh, fewer, they had just three different variations of tasks that they were using on and had some fine tuning data basically uh, trained for these tasks. And they found that if you train a model on all three variants on uh, planning and language table manipulation and some SACAN stuff, um, the combined data set resulted in the model being better at each one of those three things. And this is kind of good. It means that you can use a variety of tasks and uh, situations and environments and kind of throwing them all in together results in this uh, overall better system that can benefit from a variety of data that's quite different. Uh, So that's an interesting result of this research uh, as well. Yeah, and I think it's got
1: really interesting implications for the scaling argument. Just that, like, you know, the scaling hypothesis says obviously the bigger you make these systems, the more general purpose they become. I remember when Gatto came out the, the first time, people were pointing to exactly this thing that you just mentioned, you know, this idea that, hey, yeah, you know, maybe you can do like a bunch of different tasks. But it still performs less well than a system that's specifically trained for one of these tasks on the same like, kind of budget, if you will. Um, what this seems to suggest is, actually, if you keep growing the system, if you keep scaling it, you will actually get to a point where you get positive transfer between tasks. The skills that you learn by you know, learning to drive a car really well, all of a sudden you find, oh, shit, like, I can actually, I'm clever enough to pull out the salient lessons from that task and apply them to like, playing video games or something. And so that's sort of a, an interesting threshold and another kind of watershed moment, I think, in the history of AI scaling.
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly. I do think there are still questions where, in this case, one difference with Gato is they trained it kind of you have different types of inputs and you have different types of outputs, right? Between different video games and different tasks like language captioning or, you know, computer vision. The modalities of input and output are very different. Even if you can make yeah. a single model here, you know it's all the same: same input, same outputs. Which I think does uh, kind of make Money it easier. Step. Make it easier, yeah. yeah. And but at the same time, there was a paper last year on Socratic models, where the idea was basically just make language the intermediate output right? Where it's just reasoning and then you can have specialist models. And maybe that's the path forward where here, right? It's outputting language. And then that language is being translated to motion by this RT1 model. And you could conceive of, you know, instructions being translated to other domains with those other inputs, um, by some other model. So it's interesting also in that sense. So this is definitely building on top of uh, SACAN and Socratic models. Moving on to the next story, which is uh, pretty interesting, pretty exciting, is what happens if you run a transformer model with an optical neural network? And I think, Jeremy, you uh, took a more detailed look at this. So what did you get from this? Well, I did, and this is a funny one just for me, because so my, in a previous
1: life, I worked in a um, what's called a quantum optics lab, basically a, a lab where you have mirrors, lenses, and lasers, and your life is miserable, and, and you're just doing all kinds of horrible work on, on uh, grad student stipends to, to show quantum effects in light. And one of the guys that I met while I was uh, doing that work at a, a two-week-long conference in Switzerland was the author, the last author of this paper, uh, Peter McMahon. He probably doesn't remember me, but hi, Peter, anyway. okay. so uh, this is actually kind of cool. So one of the big things when you're running a a transformer on your standard kind of like semiconductor hardware is it's very expensive. It just costs a lot of processing power basically is expensive. It's energy expensive. And so one argument that they're exploring in this paper is like, hey, maybe uh, we can actually create optical circuits, basically use light to mirror some of the computations that are happening in electric circuits on semiconductors uh, to make a transformer circuit. And so as part of that, they use this really interesting tool that came out, you know, last like five, 10 years or so in optics. It's called a spatial light modulator. And you can imagine here a matrix of different of, of like little squares that all have different reflectivities. Very roughly speaking, I'm skipping over some details here, but basically a bunch of a matrix with a bunch of tiny squares, each one reflects a different amount of light. So now you imagine you shine a beam at that matrix, basically, and the light that comes out carries information that's encoded. In the reflectivities, there. So you get more light in one spot, less light in the other, and so on. And basically, you've just encoded a matrix. And this allows you to do fancy things like the matrix multiplication operations that are present in transformer circuits. And so, using this technique, uh, they basically show that hey, you know, we think we can make optical circuits that run transformer algorithms for cheaper and actually like potentially significantly cheaper so they experimented with simulations and they showed that in if you scale it to blazes you could get like around 10,000 times more energy efficiency uh, out of these systems than current state of the art uh, digital electronic processors so Thought that was kind of cool. I don't. Uh, I don't foresee this becoming a thing in the near future. But still, kind of interesting that you know, optical circuits. Uh, yeah, some some tangential relevant to transformers at the very least.
0: Yeah, definitely. And this uh, also in a previous life. Well, I didn't. I didn't work on this in detail, but I did have a bit of work on neuromorphic circuits during an internship, oh. which is kind of a similar in a way of. Instead of having um, neural networks run on GPUs, where GPUs are these general purpose chips you can program to do lots of different stuff, you can use it for video games, you can use them for neural networks, neuromorphic uh, architectures seek to basically you know, have a more brain-like implementation uh typically with spiking neural networks, and the outcome is similar in that it's much more energy efficient. And that's one of the major differences currently with neural networks, is they're not nearly as energy efficient as our brains. So and it's kind of interesting because so far, you know, all the work has been done on these GPUs just because you can run any model on them. Yeah. And that's kind of been the pattern in AI is you train a new model for every new task with different data sets. But now, with this in-context learning, with these massively self-supervised language models, first of all, because of their scale, and second of all, because they are useful for so many things just out of the box in a way, um, you could see you know custom hardware being built just to run a particular trained model, where once you bake in the weights, they're baked in, and maybe it's faster, maybe it's more energy efficient, but you don't have that flexibility of making it programmable for anything. And I, I am quite curious whether you we'll know, see that emerge in this coming decade as more and more stuff is driven by these large language models. Yeah, and no, it's also the the
1: homogenization of these models, like over time, Everything is, at least for now, everything seems like it's becoming a transformer. And so it's interesting, like that creates this economic incentive to go maybe, you know, take advantage of some of the unique structural properties of transformers to get more efficiency. And, you know, like NVIDIA's H100 does this, but like increasingly I I expect we'll see a market for, yeah, that more tailored stuff, whether it's neuromorphic, optical, or some other kind of like integrated circuit design.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And, uh, you know, it's early days. The scales of neural nets here aren't that big, and there's a lot of issues to work out in a way that's similar to the history of transistors, where they Mm -hmm. used to be gigantic back in the 50s and 60s. The CPUs were like less powerful than present day calculators. I'm curious to see if we'll see a similar pattern of these sorts of hardware techniques um, starting out as very impractical, very small, but as you improve on the tech, you can actually start, you know, having billion-parameter models, uh, which, yeah, is is interesting. If that's where we go, we have new com- a new computation paradigm. That's you know, we've been using the same paradigm more or less since the '40s, uh, the von Neumann architecture. And here, this is analog computing. This is no longer yeah, using yeah. bits and bytes, right? So. That is historically, I guess, if you are a nerd about technology is very interesting.
1: Yeah. Also, you know potential for displacing your sort of established industry players, right? Like anytime you have a new technology like this, people talk about quantum computing in the same vein, but like the people who have historically, the companies and, and even the countries that have historically led the way on certain kinds of processors might all of a sudden find, oh shit, like there's a there's a new wind blowing and uh, and it may be coming from another set of actors
0: yeah and uh, speaking of that in our lighting round, the first story is scientists now know, scientists now want to create AI using real human brain cells uh, and this is on a new paper that is more of a position paper, no real results, and they are trying to uh, coin this term organoid intelligence, which is uh, biocomputing and intelligence in a dish where you know you basically want to grow. A little biological computer that is using bioengineering advances uh, to be able to develop these brain organoids, which are, I guess, kind of like chips, kind of like transistors in a way. And that's another possible avenue forward, where maybe you could, you know, bake in <laughs> something like ChatGPT or or something like that in biological hardware, which as we know is is much more efficient and dense in terms of what it can do. Um, This is even more early on and I think is probably less promising just because, I don't know, growing brains uh, does seem pretty far out, Uh, but that's just showing I think there'll be a lot more investing in these new uh, computing paradigms.
1: Yeah, and, and more exploration too of the mapping between the human brain and AI systems. Like, it's an interesting debate that we have perennially in this field where people will say, oh, well, you know, your artificial neurons, these very simple mathematical structures, they don't capture the full depth and complexity of, of what happens in a real neuron. And um, this, I don't know, this might give us a little bit of a lens on that too. You know, is it, can you get simple neural circuits? With real biological neurons to do things that are more complex than the same number of, say, artificial neurons set up in the same way. I don't know if that's going to be feasible in the near term, but it's kind of an interesting, almost philosophical question that uh, comes to mind with this stuff.
0: Definitely, and I think from an AI researcher perspective, it's like, well, if we have these biological neural nets, will we be able to train them? You know, <laughs> can we? <laughs> can I do my back propagation. Through I my... know. I guess humans <laughs> yeah. learn somehow, so. That's true. Uh, yeah. Uh, next story, we have uh, Google's uh, Google is one step closer to building its 1,000-language AI model. So this is about a new paper titled Google's uh, USM, uh, Scaling Automatic Speech Recognition Beyond 100 language, uh, Languages. So this is speech recognition, you have audio, and you want to figure out the text of that. And yeah, they announced uh, that they want to be able to support the world's uh, 1,000 most spoken languages, and this is a paper that's showing progress towards that with a model that supports over 100 languages, um, which is you know big, of course, and has uh, a lot of data. This historically has been a harder area to make progress in because having Annotated uh, audio with text is needed. You can't really do self-supervision uh, in a way that language models do. But yeah, okay, we are we are now making some real progress.
1: Yeah, and it, it, it ties into language modeling, I guess, in an interesting way. You know, I remember Jan like I just. Pulled it up, so this is the the uh, head of the AI alignment team at OpenAI. So he tweeted this out like earlier this month, so or no, last month, February thirteenth, twenty twenty three. He said, "With the instruct GPT paper, we found that our models generalized to follow instructions in non English, even though we almost exclusively trained on English. We still don't know why. I wish someone would figure this out." And so there's this. Oh, sorry, go ahead.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. It reminds me. Uh... I vaguely remember in some previous work where, I guess, speech patterns, I remember seeing this where if you train on a lot of English and you train a little bit of Spanish, learning to speak in English seems to translate to making it easier to learn other languages. Uh, So that's quite related.
1: Yeah. And and it's it's, um, all part of this debate over, you know, people always have about, well, did your, so your model might be good at, Generating text and predicting the next word, but does it really understand? Right? And people who say, "Well, it's really just a statistical inference model," right? And like as, as if the brain is anything different. Let's say, but um, in this context, it's sort of this interesting mystery for people who take that view. Like, how do you then explain this? You may be able to. Uh, th- I'm sure there are interesting explanations, but this at least was being pointed at by you know in this case. Jan Leica at OpenAI, that hey, this seems like a genuine mystery. Another one of those weird blessings of scale. You just scale up these models, and they see, just seem to figure out how to do shit, and we don't really know how. But uh, yeah, many many mysteries still left, even though we're you know getting on for three years in the AI scaling game.
0: Yeah. Yeah, even you could argue a decade in scaling. Right. Where this is now. I mean, there was a paper on scaling that argued that there was like actually two phases, where like the 2010s was a period of scaling, and now in the last few years we entered a new area of scaling that's like even uh, faster. So uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Next up, we have AI masters uh, video games 6,000 times faster by reading the instructions. This is about the paper Read and Reap Rewards, learning to play Atari with the help of instruction manuals. AI does like these uh, (laughs) piffy paper titles, (laughs) which is fun. And yeah, I like the... title says the idea here is that instead of learning from scratch with trial and error, which is the typical paradigm for reinforcement learning, you start out knowing nothing about the task and you just try different things until you figure out what works and what doesn't. Here, the idea is, well, for games, for a lot of stuff, you have instruction manuals that explain the rules of the game and the goals of a game. So there is um, you know, a slightly fancy approach. To be able to translate the text of an instruction manual to the visual language of the game and the actions you can do. And perhaps unsurprisingly, if you read the instruction manual, you can <laughs> learn much faster. And I'm I, I was quite excited at seeing this because it's such a common sense idea of like, don't start assuming you know nothing. You can actually be told what the task is. And do it, and and there's been other work on this uh, throughout the years, but I think as a paradigm for reinforcement learning, uh, this is hopefully going to become more of a norm.
1: Well, and I think this is a little bit of an I I told you so moment uh, for you, Andre, because uh, as I recall, you've you've raised this on a couple of occasions. Just this idea that hey, like this is a direction that probably would be fruitful to explore. It's kind of cool to see it materialize like this, and. well, good on you for not uh, not being too uh, <laughs> too to rub your face in it about it. That's, that's a really interesting result, and and the power of priors, right? Like, how many times do we do we try get, like throwing our our models at something from scratch? Uh, treat it as like a narrow problem in that sense. And um, and train just for that one task, and we find we don't get as good performance as a model that has a little bit, you know, kind of a a bit of a leg up, you know, whether through pre-training on a bunch of different tasks or whether through kind of direct instruction. This kind of seems like it's along that continuum, like a a bit of pre-training in a sense before the main task is attempted.
0: Yeah, in a sense, uh, you know, there's some caveats here. Where the games we did were pretty simple. Uh, but still you could you can imagine this being generalizable where if you have instructions now you can connect those instructions to a visual semi embodied world and you could even argue this is you know related to that uh, paper on robotics we had where you say in text what you want and you get yeah. that in, in practice instead of just uh, learning from scratch. And last up in this uh, section, we have artificial intelligence from a psychologist' point of view, and I think Jeremy, you can tell us more about this.
1: Yeah, well, I thought this was kind of a a bit of a cute paper. It uses GPT three, so you know, a little bit out of date. There is really one main thing that we're trying to get at here, and, and that's like looking at the failure modes of AI systems and comparing them to the failure modes of human cognition. So is it the case that, for example, a language model like GPT-3 will make some of the same mistakes that human beings would make on a psychological test? And the example that really jumped out at me here was something called the Linda test. And so this is where uh, you have test subjects and they're introduced to a fictional young woman named Linda as a person who they're told is deeply concerned with social justice and opposes nuclear power. Based on that information, those two pieces of information, so Linda is really concerned about social justice and she opposes nuclear power, um, the uh, subjects are asked to decide between two statements. One, is Linda a bank teller? Or two, is she a bank teller and, at the same time, active in the feminist movement? Now, the thing is, if you're familiar with probability and or have any intuition about this, you might know that no matter what the context is, the odds that someone is going to be a bank teller is always going to be higher than the odds that they're going to be a bank teller and that another thing is going to be true, no matter how likely that second thing. Because you know the probability for that second thing is going to be a number between 0 and 1, and so that can only make the overall probability lower. And so what was interesting here is that Uh, GPT-3 makes the same mistake here that a lot of humans might. It says, oh, just based on this background that she's against nuclear power and and cares about social justice, I'm going to bet that not only is she a bank teller, but also... She is uh, active in the feminist movement. So sort of interesting, it's, it's, um, it's the intuitive answer that comes to mind to all of us before we really start to think about it. Um, interesting to see it reflected in GPT-3 uh, at this scale and stage. And you know, curious to see, is this something that persists with more and more powerful models? Um, Andre, I'm sure you've heard of this, but the, the inverse scaling prize, this is something that uh, AI safety people have been on about. And it's this question of, like, can we find tasks that AI systems perform worse on at larger scales, and this seems like it could potentially be an interesting candidate, right? Like the kinds of mistakes that human beings make, the better AI systems get, the more scaled they get, maybe the better they replicate the mistakes of the human beings whose data they're trained on. So, interesting question, but uh, just thought I'd flag because it seemed like a fun one.
0: Yeah, it's it's kind of fun, uh, and there's you know this test has been around for like. 40 years, so it there is a rich history of research. Things like uh, if you word the question differently, you might get different results. I have seen a kind of interesting point uh, that Gary Marcus has made on this sort of test, where he argued that you know, if you're using GPT-3, it probably knows about this test, right? So if is it just saying what it has right. seen, or is it actually responding from scratch? And that's kind of a fun question.
1: Yeah, the, the all-important safety question of like, what does your AI model actually believe about the world, as distinct from what will it tell you it believes?
0: Mm-hmm. Exactly. Moving on to policy and societal impacts stories, first up we have OpenAI is now everything it promised not to be, corporate, closed source, and for profit. Um, As many have possibly seen, it's been a little bit of a joke for a while that OpenAI is not open now. They have stopped publishing models, uh, code, even papers more more recently, there's no paper on ChatGPT, uh, and they did change from being a nonprofit to being this kind of strange combination of a limited for profit something. And yeah, now is it probably a good time to reflect on how OpenAI has evolved? Um, what are your thoughts, Jeremy?
1: Yeah, well, I thought this was an interesting article um, because it really reflects the fact that there are two parallel universes in interpreting what, what OpenAI is all about and, and the reasoning behind what they're doing. There's kind of like a cynical take and there's a charitable take. And I think there's an interesting argument about whether the truth lies somewhere in the middle here. Um, the the um, sort of cynical take, which is adopted by this journalist who is writing this post, not the first journalist to, uh, to rip on OpenAI... Um, the cynical take here is like, look, you launched, uh, you know, in 2015 or whatever it was to, to the world. You sold this very optimistic message. You told the world you'd be open and publish all your stuff because you were worried about concentration of power. That was like the the key thing that you wanted to avoid, and that's why the name is OpenAI. Um, but now all of a sudden we're seeing you, yeah, close up, become a capped for profit. They often emphasize the for-profit part. They don't emphasize the capped part, which, in the more charitable interpretation, is actually a really important part of the story. But in any case, they go on from there and they say, "Hey, like you basically sold out, and now you're pumping out these models." You know, Elon Musk is is famously now on this side of the equation, saying, "Look, you're just totally for-profit, um, pumping out models at scale or whatever, with uh, with with profit in mind." Um, I think the more charitable take, uh, which again I th- I think is has an important uh, component of truth here is if you're open AI, you launch in 2015, uh, your mission is to make AI openly available to the world, avoid concentration of power, and avoid the catastrophic risks that come with AI. Now, those three things cannot coexist. And over the course of the next few years, you gradually start to learn that. You start to realize, hey, we can't have arbitrarily powerful AI systems just released to the world Uh, in the way that we might otherwise want to if these systems are intrinsically dangerous or if they can power malicious applications. That's kind of one ingredient. Then, worse still for you, you discover, oh shit, AI scaling with GPT, let's say GPT-2 actually, maybe the first instance of that, but really GPT-3, AI scaling seems to be a real thing. It seems like we now know what it's going to take to push capabilities much further, and it's going to cost a lot of money. And so now, We have to kind of look at our nonprofit status and say, is this really sustainable? We need to find a way to get money in the door. And so they adopt this cap for profit structure where they say, yes, we have to be profitable because we've got to be able to raise money from investors to fuel the scaling that otherwise is totally unsustainable let's at least cap the profits that our investors can make at 100 fold so microsoft invests billions of dollars they can only ever get a 100x return all the rest essentially gets funneled to the open ai nonprofit and you know for presumably redistribution down the road and so you can kind of see like, OpenAI trying to walk this awkward tightrope. You can have a little bit of sympathy for them, at least, as they go through that process. But on the other hand, it's also true that, yeah, you know, there has been a reversal on a lot of these public positions. Uh, they talk about it a lot in their, their recent post, uh, preparing for AGI or something. Um, anyway, uh, pr- preparing for AGI and beyond or something like that. Anyway, um, that, that was my two cents. I think there are two parallel worlds there. I think there's some truth to both. Uh, they're both interesting to think about.
0: Yeah, I would say I agree where um, it's it's interesting timing looking hysteric, uh, historically where they switched this nonprofit to this uh, capped profit model in 2019. And this pretty much happened uh, before, like as they were making this shift. To mainly working on GPT-type stuff and scaling things up, right? They released GPT in 2018. They released GPT-2 in 2019. And GPT-2 at the time was quite big at a few billion parameters, right? And then they changed uh, their uh, status and they got this billion-dollar investment from Microsoft. And I think, yeah, if you're thinking about, you know, Hypotheticals. I don't think we'd have ChatGPT without them having changed yeah. to a uh, capped uh, profit model. And I think there are some some arguments, you know, in in both directions. Where you know, being closed on the one hand is not great because now you have a lot of more concentration on. Basically, you are able to dictate what people do, and maybe you can misuse the AI. But on the other hand, I will say that um, I've found that OpenAI has been pretty careful in making sure the models are not misused. So with DALI, for instance, right, they didn't release the model. And if you try and use DALI via their API or via the website, they do. Prohibit you from making, uh, you know, deepfakes and and porn, for instance. Uh, and similarly, with ChatGPT, right? It's it's built in with uh, guardrails against, uh, you know, racist speech or misinformation, intentional misinformation. So part of the initial vision is definitely there, where the goal is to guide development of AI in a direction that is. Broadly beneficial to humanity, even if it's no longer quite as open uh, to kind of a, the larger sense of humanity being able to guide it. Um, yeah, so I'm quite sympathetic to OpenAI. I think there is a good argument to be made that while it might be a cynical perspective that they decided to just switch from nonprofit to profit. From an AI safety perspective, there has been this camp that said, let's develop the models ourselves so we can guide them in a good direction. And that really seems to me what they're doing. Yeah, and, and that take in the safety community is
1: controversial too. You know, like we <laughs> we can certainly say that, but I, I think from a you know where these intentions come from, like I think I, I don't think Sam Altman is sitting there in his like you know evil lair. thinking about how can i uh, how can i close off access to these models and like you know make a ton of profit um i think opening eyes consistently invest in, and sam a actually personally is consistently invested in a bunch of projects aimed at you know sharing the wealth and figuring out how to do that uh, properly but um but it, it's it's a tricky tightrope i mean i i don't really particularly begrudge anybody their opinions on this and opening eyes um opening eyes uh, publication strategy and, and the fact that they've been so open and they've created so much hype around these models is highly controversial in the AI alignment community itself for accelerating uh, AI progress in a context where we don't know how to make these systems safe. And so, yeah, uh, there's so much to dig into and, and maybe at some point we'll, we'll do a longer discussion about it, but uh, I think we've got a lightning round. Oh, sorry. Yes. No, we got one more, one more news One out more here. main
0: story, and then we got a lightning round. So, moving on, the next story is as AI booms, lawmakers struggle to understand the technology. So, yeah, uh, you know, obviously now everyone knows about ChatGPT, everyone knows that this is a big deal. And Maybe unsurprisingly, now there's a rush for lawmakers, policymakers to understand what to make of it and how they can impact, or what should they do in this in this sense.
1: Yeah, yeah. Everyone listening here will be shocked, I'm sure, absolutely <laughs> shocked to learn that politicians do not totally understand what AI is. Um, and and this was an article yet yeah, that referenced a couple of lawmakers who were sort of. Frustrated, they're going around. They're trying to tell their colleagues in Congress, like, "Hey, uh, bad shit is happening. Like, we need to regulate this space now." And the biggest blocker they're running into is exactly that. You know, these are the the people who famously asked Mark Zuckerberg, like, how he makes money, and um, and didn't quite understand the answer. And so, you know, this sort of thing, but applied to AI, does cause problems when there's a lot of technical nuance in this space. Um, but yeah, they they talk about this idea of companies. Being kind of locked right now in a race to the bottom on safety. That's the thing that seems to be sacrificed as everybody rushes to get, you know, Bing chat out the door or whatever else. And um, one of the things that I found maybe a, a little disappointing in this article was that they really kind of blurred the lines between different kinds of concern. They kind of like mixed them together. They talked about ethics in the same sentence as they talked about like physical safety from AI systems and malicious use and... And catastrophic risk and all this stuff, um, so it, it kind of it made it a little bit difficult. To, you know, if I'm imagining myself as like a policymaker trying to understand this whole space, uh, you know, like how do you, how do you tease apart these issues? And if you just like kind of group them together, I, I don't know. That was just my personal take. I thought the article on the whole was still an interesting little expose.
0: Yeah, I think it it's a good kind of thing to reflect on. Obviously, companies don't have much incentive helping out the government to regulate them. Uh, But this also reminds me that this is where academia can play a good part, where, for instance, at Stanford, uh, there has been the uh, Human AI Institute, uh, HAI, for a few years now. And that's meant to be an interdisciplinary group where you can have, you know, policymakers, lawyers, um, you know, People from different fields, even philosophy, uh, collaborate on um, really researching AI in a broader context beyond just the technical details. And they have even published uh, policy briefs. So this is a sort of thing where I think uh, maybe similar to um, other areas of technology, it's not going to be the companies driving the discussion around regulation. Is going to be groups that are not financially. Incentivized and can can break it down technically.
1: Yeah, that's so true. I mean, it makes you look at the ecosystem right now and wonder, like, okay, are are the players at the table all the players that we need at the table? And uh, right now, I'm I'm guessing the answer is very much no. So yeah, hopefully academia can step in. Yep.
0: And now we can go to the lightning round. And first up is pretty much a follow-up to that prior story with how ChatGPT broke the EU plan to regulate AI. And the broke might be a little bit uh, dramatic, but (laughs) it definitely has impacted it. So we have mentioned it a couple of times. Europe has been working on the AI Act, which is really a very ambitious effort to introduce regulations and uh, basically categorize risks of different AI systems and then have developers and companies uh, be liable for you know releasing things that are not don't have safety constraints, for instance, uh, don't have transparency and human oversight. Uh, it doesn't look like there's much kind of consideration for things like chat GPT. In the AI Act. So there's some effort to address it. And there's some argument as to whether, you know, in this kind of very broad technology of a chatbot, should this be classified as a high risk thing where you are required to be transparent and have human oversight? Or maybe it's too general a technology to be able to categorize it as one thing or another.
1: Yeah. And it's one of the, properties of these systems as well that you know you can build a really powerful ai system with a specific use case in mind but if it's a generative model or a general purpose ai system like you know chat gpt or gpt3 it will have a whole bunch of capabilities other than those you think it has other than those you have in mind and so you might be making like a perfectly you know innocent uh, psychotherapy chatbot and then you learn. Oh wait, shit! This actually has the ability to manipulate people. It has the ability to you know plant ideas in people's heads. Um, and so yeah, really not clear what high risk ought to mean. Um, but it it certainly seems like it should capture the potential uses of these systems and not their intended uses. And I think that's one distinction that's really hard to like uh, to get around because you know like. Uranium, uh, uranium isotopes are useful for many different things, and you know, if if they were just useful for nuclear power, hey, maybe it would make sense to to say that they're not high risk. But they could potentially be used for other things that are uh, less tasteful. And in the same way, you know, we we buckle down on our uranium. Maybe the same ought to be said for very powerful AI systems of the sort that uh, we're building now and and in the future.
0: Yeah, I think. That's where it might not be that far from what the act is, where it is focused on uses of AI. So, it's for instance, yeah. facial recognition for policing. And in that sense, I think, um, you know, if, if you're using ChatGPT to make a therapist, that's pretty easy to classify as high risk. So, it might not be that big a jump. Uh, but it is kind of tricky to say, well, this is kind of a base technology that a lot of things build on top of. Does this base technology already need to incorporate safety or is it uh, down the downstream players that need to think about it more? Um, but yeah, legal stuff is very much also catching up. Another story we have here is about how the UK Supreme Court hears a landmark case uh, about uh, a patent case over AI inventions, and we've already discussed this. I think last year, where uh, Stephen Fowler has tried to do this in the U.S., where he, he argued that you know an AI he developed should be granted patents. Here, the same outcome: the Supreme Court ruled that you cannot list an AI as you know the inventor of something. Um, Still a bit of a, you know, maybe not that big a deal for now, but uh, now with ChatGPT, GPT, you know, maybe you could argue that at at least it's collaborative in some sense, right? Yeah.
1: Yeah. It uh, it reminds me of... um outing uh, adding, adding myself as a nerd here. It reminds me of an episode of Star Trek: The Next Generation, uh, in which there's a debate over whether or not Data, who's the android on the ship, should have like rights as a person. And um, all this stuff sounded nice and science fictiony back in the uh, 1990s. But but today, oh boy, you know, it, it kind of makes you wonder, and and it brings all these other questions in about you know uh, AI sentience and things like this. Like we're not that far from being forced to contend with with these questions. Um, but the the legal one is interesting too, because presumably, if you set that precedent, especially in the UK legal system, which is very very precedent oriented, you know, if you set that precedent that AIs today's AIs are not going to be considered um, as possible inventors of of patents, like presumably that's going to have an impact on your future rulings as these systems get better. And so kind of makes you wonder like what kind of anticipatory thinking is going on here? Like are they thinking about, okay, maybe not this system, but what about the systems of 2025 and and on? And so anyway, sort of interesting to think about the future in that sense.
0: Definitely. Moving away from legal stuff and policy stuff, we have a couple stories on societal impacts. Uh, First up we have how a couple in Canada were reportedly scammed out of twenty one thousand after getting a call from AI generated voice pretending to be their son. So uh, pretty much what it says, there was someone who claimed to be a lawyer who said their son was in jail for killing a diplomat, and there was I guess uh, there was this uh, fake voice of their son. Uh, and yeah, they got scammed. And this is something we've, we've seen already in a couple of cases of there was, I think, also a scam on a bank uh, previously. And now with 11 labs, uh, making it easy to clone anyone's voice yeah. with just a bit of data, we'll see a lot of this, I think. This is just a goldmine for phishing and for you know scammers. Uh, so... Already, we see an example just a month after Eleven Labs kind of became big. Concerning,
1: yeah, and the, and the speed at which these techniques are evolving too. You know, like. It used to be, you know, you'd go into your like your, your grandparents' place and then get, you know, they'd have someone on the phone and they'd just not be quite sure and they'd be like, "Hey Andre, like uh, can you tell me like is this suspicious to you or something?" Or they'd show you an email and the same thing would play out and you'd kind of go like, "Okay, boomer, like let me just fix this problem for you right now." And you'd explain to them how it all works. But like with the rate at which this stuff is evolving, basically unless you're tracking the cutting edge of AI all the time, There are going to be these new, like, Threat vectors, these new phishing attacks, these new malware schemes, whatever, that are going to take you by surprise. And all of a sudden, it's not going to be good enough to just be like a Zoomer or a millennial or whatever. You're going to have to actively put in effort to understand what the landscape of capabilities is. Um, and there is no better way to do that, ladies and gentlemen, than to subscribe, like, share, and comment on the last week in AFN. Sorry. No. Anyway.
0: Uh, yeah. 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 You, you know, being informed is good. Yeah, you uh, <laughs> but this this also reminds me, you know, possibly like many people I've had some experiences with scammers and not to generalize but in some cases it wasn't too hard to figure out it was like someone not from the US with a pretty heavy accent now these operations running from outside the US where they want you to send them Bitcoin can be a lot more uh, yeah yeah a lot better at fooling people so yeah definitely concerning and speaking of filters, uh, the last story here is how TikTok's trendy beauty filter ushers in uh, new tech and new problems. So now there's this filter called Bald Glamour, which has now been downloaded more than 16 million times since its release. And, you know, there's been other filters for improving your appearance and, and your face, but this one is pretty striking because it It really changes quite a bit your appearance, and uh, it's been another a lot. It it I think is adding to the problem we've seen a lot of on Instagram and elsewhere of just pushing for these unrealistic standards and pushing for you know the notion that you have to be beautiful, right? And this false reality that Instagram and now TikTok are conveying of you know, this is how people look, they look glamorous, uh, or, or things like this. And yeah, uh, again, kind of concerning. Yeah, like to me, this one is like an
1: entire philosophical social debate in a beautiful, tightly focused nutshell that nobody can really ignore. How much of you do you want to preserve when AI can change what you appear to be? like this is an important question it's it's not something you can glance over right we wear makeup we make small changes to ourselves and and that's that's okay but there's like a continuum there a slippery slope and at some point presumably we decide okay that's no longer who i am and like like how far do we want that to go and here we're kind of being confronted with that and the weird thing is that you know maybe 16 million people feel the answer is we take this as far as it goes. You know, what if this changes your skin tone completely? What if it changes your whole face so you're unrecognizable? In a sense, what have you even achieved there? Like, it, 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 it's to me, it's I don't know. It just seems like such a fascinating question about what humanity is going to want to turn into once basically anything is possible. There's almost like weird transhumanist dimension to it in a way, and it's yet just focused on this such a an innocent seeming or or at least a kind of uh, an innocuous seeming like. Tech product here
0: yeah yeah this is getting into some pretty deep territory of also with respect to online in general like what is the boundary between a character you're playing and yourself right right uh there's like terms like hyperreality and and all this discussion around that pretty interesting question and stuff like this yeah we'll just keep adding to it But moving on to some art and some fun stuff, not all fun stuff, we got a few more stories to round things out, starting with AI-generated fiction is flooding literary magazines but not fooling anyone. This is following up on a recent story on how a renowned uh, magazine, Clark's World, which is focused on science fiction. Closed uh, submissions due to being flooded with AI submissions. There's a chart showing, you know, in uh, February they got like a thousand submissions. It's it's almost a thousand-fold increase or a hundred-fold increase, and this is pretty much spammy. It's just people trying to make a buck, for the most part. And now there's been other uh, uh, publications that have uh, gone the same problem and these are used to be open to anyone to submit to these are kind of avenues for people starting out uh who haven't been published in any real way to publish short stories so this is um yeah kind of concerning where it's another case of if you have people who want to make a quick buck or don't really take the stuff that seriously now if you are someone who is trying to write something serious. Um, these these uh, avenues are, are being kind of made more difficult to take part in.
1: Yeah, and, and to stretch the discussion that we had just a minute ago on kind of remasking yourself visually, um, you know, how about thinking of this as another kind of mask that you can wear as an author? You know, you're not actually showing your true face, your true self, your true writing, You're just like putting out a bunch of chat GPT text and calling it your own. And, uh, you know, how, at what point do we start to say, okay, well, we don't want to be reading content that is like that. Or, I mean, obviously we're going to end up doing it, but um, anyways, I think it's another, another interesting dimension of that. And, and just so, oh, so scary as a time for people in the publishing business right now. I mean, uh, I, I've got, um, like I've got some friends who are who are uh, doing different things in that in that space I've got a book coming out soon actually I hasten to mention almost forgot about that but anyway um, and and you, you just like look at all the people who work in the space the copywriters the copy editors the the people who do marketing like all these people across the spectrum and what their jobs are gonna look like not just because they'll get automated but because they'll get flooded with like this kind of product uh. I I don't know. I mean, we're going to need to rethink the whole architecture of this space, I suspect, uh, just to handle that volume.
0: Yeah, I agree. I think I'm not quite as concerned because effectively, this is spam, right? And we have had spam filters. This is harder to detect, but it's possible. Uh, This article noted that, you know, they could basically reproduce some of these entries where there were 20 short stories titled The Last Hope. (laughs) And if you ask... ChatGPT to write a short science fiction story and then copy-paste the instructions to this magazine, it generates things like the last echo or the last message or, or things like that. So um, I feel like, and also this is a new, like ghostwriting has existed. There are services where you can pay people to write things Really, pay them very little and then publish it and try to make a quick buck. And that's been going on for years. So, this is really just making that easier. Uh, and hopefully, it'll not be, you know, it'll be harder for these platforms, but I think you could probably um, automate detection of a lot of this.
1: Yeah, I, I, maybe the reason for my pessimism is is scaling. Like, I just see this as like right now, these are relatively easy to detect. It's still more of a pain in the ass because you've got this extra due diligence step. Um, but you know, even today, like detection mechanisms are pretty shaky, and uh, I would expect generation to beat discrimination in the long run as these language models get more and more human like. Um, so you know, it's more like like this is a bit of a, a harbinger of what's to come. And I don't expect the problem to get any easier to deal with. I'll put it that way.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I agree. I think maybe it's hopefully, right? It's going to be a case of if you're generating garbage, generic nonsense, even if you get past it, you know, it won't, people won't care or or won't look at it. Uh, but we'll see. And next up, uh, quite related to that, another story is Chad GPT launches boom and AI written ebooks on Amazon. So uh, there's an example here where someone wrote a 30 page illustrated children's book in a matter of hours. And now there were over 200 ebooks in the Kindle store listed <laughs> with G- Chad GPT as a co author. Uh, with things like the power of homework <laughs> uh and yeah this is again a case of uh people wanting to just make a quick buck and you know spamming effectively
1: when it's these all these uh because this was in in at least one of these articles where they were talking about how it's all these get rich quick youtubers who are like hey like let me show you how to make like you know the fastest the, the same people who are telling you to do like drop shipping on Amazon or whatever to to make money and now this is just like the new thing and like thank you for adding friction to society guys like this is really wonderful but uh but yeah I mean you know it's your point it, it's right now they're low quality at a certain point when they become high quality the flip side is like hey we just get really good AI generated content so maybe that's just intrinsically good um, but it does make you wonder like how is the publishing business going to change in light of this like is it are books even going to be a thing? I mean, I don't know. Kind of interesting to think about uh, where this all goes.
0: Definitely, yeah. Um, But moving on to some more positive stories uh, to round things out, we have the first story is Hollywood 2.0, how the rise of AI tools like Runway are changing filmmaking. This is not a super in-depth story, but I did find it quite interesting to find out that the movie, everything, everywhere, all at once, which I think many people maybe are aware of, it's been winning uh, tons of awards. And it's a very visual effect heavy movie that had a pretty low budget and only like six people. So it goes into how in doing the movie, the visual effect artist uh, used this tool runway, which is a company that produces AI-powered video editing software and you know not just editing but also various things like masking and things like that. And I found it quite interesting that now this major movie that is might win an Oscar was partially made using this runway tool. Yeah and the effect
1: that might have I mean you think about what YouTube did to um, to kind of the Democratization of content creation, hosting—like, you know—I I wonder what other you know, indie movies that start to look like their blockbuster budget movies. Um, you know, what might that look like, and, and the opportunities for like artistic expression and all that stuff? Um, really, kind of exciting. Uh, exciting time to be a movie fan.
0: Yeah, I think it's a lot of this. I think isn't necessarily going to enable things we haven't done before. We've had visual effects. For a while, Marvel is just mostly computer-generated movies. But now it's going to be more affordable and easier to do things like that, which is exciting. Yeah. And uh, final story, we're going to loop back to something we touched on a few weeks ago. The AI-powered Seinfeld spoof is set to return to Twitch with new guards, guards rails in place. And I think it might already be back. So. Again, kind of a funny story where there is this uh, never-ending uh, Seinfeld spoof of Seinfeld doing kind of stand-up that initially went wrong. It made, I believe, racist or transphobic jokes, and that was interesting. I think in this in this article it goes into uh, the company's reaction and how they fought. There were moderation uh, going on in OpenAI's um, API. And that was not the case. And now they are relaunching this with much more of a, a careful approach of making sure that there is moderation where they're working with OpenAI to moderate and also with their own team. And, and thank goodness uh, that, that this uh, Seinfeld AI-powered Seinfeld thing is back
1: online, because the internet needs that, I will say. Um, no, I mean, it, it's, it's just really, it's really interesting to see the, 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 also the question there as between, you know, who owns the responsibility? Like if, if they thought that OpenAI was doing this screening and then they weren't. And as a result, like they incur brand damage in, on their project. It's like, well, who, like, who do you blame? Like, was that your fault for not checking in? Was it OpenAI's fault for not being clear about what was happening in the back end? Like all kinds of interesting questions. Anytime. AI starts to do a lot of our thinking for us, and uh, the the positive thing is that we now have Seinfeld back on the airwaves. So very very pleased about that.
0: Yes, uh, now that it's back, I think I'll I'll actually check it out. I'm curious to see yeah, yeah, <laughs> what yeah. this uh, thing is, and you know it's twenty four seven, so <laughs> you could go to Twitch and find it, I assume well with that we are done with this week's episode thank you so much for listening as usual as we mentioned you can find our text newsletter at lastweekin.ai which has many more articles and if you like a podcast we'd really appreciate it if you share it and especially if you could give it a rating and a review on something like Apple Podcasts. I actually do read them. There was a recent one that mentioned that AI assisted editing that I did was actually annoying. It was like clipping things, so I reverted I to doing, you know, manual editing, uh, having tried that, which was kind of funny. So uh, yeah, you know, if you have suggestions or if you just want to let us know that you appreciate the podcast, we would appreciate that. Uh, but you know, if, if you don't have a time for that. We do appreciate everyone listening and we hope you will keep tuning in as we keep covering the news.